One of the uh, most important thinkers and writers of the church in the first few centuries was an Egyptian named Origen from Alexandria in the third century. And some actually include him uh, in what we call the church fathers, which you may have heard that term thrown around, that designation. One of my favorite things that he taught, and he could be a very, very practical teacher, um, one of the, my favorite things he taught had to do with Jesus' disciples and accounts like the one we have in the Gospel of Mark today. Origen was interested in how we're meant to learn from them because, in a sense, they are us. They are us. We find them here in Mark 9 arguing about who is the greatest. The parallel account in Matthew 18 is more concerned with the teaching than the events. So you have Jesus asking them, uh, or so you have them asking Jesus directly, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples, Origen said, are exemplary in bringing their embarrassing questions straight to Jesus. Often we don't realize that we've asked an embarrassing question, right, until we get the answer, which may explain why we can be reluctant to ask questions at all. The disciples were actually, we see in verse 32 here, they were afraid to ask a question for more clarity on Jesus' dying and rising comment, but they didn't hesitate to insist on either arguing about in Mark's account or even asking about in Matthew's account who is going to be the greatest. Throughout the Gospels, the disciples have a penchant right, for asking these kinds of questions and just generally being their head-scratching selves. And it helps us because in them we can see our head-scratching selves. Whether or not we would actually think or ask the same questions or have that argument that they had in that way, we can indeed see ourselves in them. There's a good chance that we're operating with a misunderstanding about how things work, too. And a good chance we're happy with our own answers to questions we may not even bother to ask. In Mark 9, these debating disciples, they seem to assume that the kingdom is going to work in a way with which they're familiar. In a way they believe it will, even though they've already actually gotten some intel to the contrary from Jesus himself, right? Even just in the preceding verses here about his own self-giving and death. Arguing so overtly about who is greater, it might seem strange to us. Can you imagine debating with someone, who's greater? Who's worthy of more honor among us? Here's a hot tip. Don't do this with your wife or a, on the way home or with a friend that you're hanging out with lunch or anything like that. You probably don't want to say, let's just sort this out, right? You're not going to. It's not something that makes a lot of sense to you, but it actually made a ton of sense in their day to have this conversation. Their culture, in their culture, honor was a constant preoccupation. Honor, who receives it, how much, and for what reason? Who sits where at a banquet? We need to know these things. Who should be greeted by whom and in what way? What belongs to whom? And who takes over in what circumstances? Whose kid are you? Where do you live? How old are you? And how advanced are you in the practice of the law? All of these things matter. There was a Jewish sect in their day called the Qumran community. You might be familiar with that, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found. Um, and these were the works of this community. They were often associated with the Essenes, if you're familiar with that uh, group. And every year, they reevaluated each member's rank. They went through everybody. Rank specifically determined where each person sat and it determined in which order they could speak in a given setting. Now it's your turn. 
your 37th. We'll hear from you in about three hours. Can you imagine that? Rank specifically determined these things. And it wasn't all that strange, actually. It was just a little more formalized in the way the Qumran community did this. And so cynically, we might think that's just an unfair means of control or manipulation, right? With our Western mind, we think that's, that's just control and manipulation. But less cynically, we can see in it a community desire to actually give honor where it's due, to draw influence and direction from where it's most helpful. This was pretty common thinking in that time. So the disciples are not that far off, at least in their day. Think about this. Paul, he gives these detailed instructions to the Corinthians about church order. It's interesting that this was necessary. How to let the gifts of everyone operate in the group. Instead of following the norms that were there of either the Jews or the Greeks um, who would have made up this church, they're going to have to rethink who gets to speak and when and about what with the goal of what? Building up the whole community. The old social hierarchy won't do. Paul's living this out. He calls for order, but it's not the old order. You might say that Paul calls for an exception here that proves the rule. So then, how does Jesus respond to this argument, to the disciples' argument in Mark? And what's in this for us? What does Jesus answer to this parallel embarrassing question that they ask in Matthew? As Mark tells it, Jesus listened to them hash it out as they traveled, right? Verse 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. This feels like a familiar moment, doesn't it? A parent, or a friend, or a boss, or a loved one waits until you're back from wherever, and you sit down thinking you're going to do this, or you're going to do that lighthearted thing, and they say, so, can we talk? And it's this pregnant moment, right? You know that moment. You've been on one side of it, or both. The disciples have deb debated all the various factors by which they could rank one another, and maybe they've kind of sorted it out amongst themselves. And then Jesus speaks, and it goes sideways into silence. The question he asks, it isn't for forceful. Jesus doesn't even say, why were you arguing about that? He just asks, what were you talking about? And that question is arresting in this reality check kind of way. Maybe they thought it was just their own thing to sort out, nothing to bother Jesus about, but just in case someone needed to take over for him. And maybe for them it felt really urgent to talk about this, or they got wrapped up in this. This is so important. But then Jesus wants to know more. So what were you talking about back there? Crickets. Let's listen to Origen a little bit and see ourselves and the disciples in this moment. First, I think we should zoom out. Can we see in them how easy it is to get caught, to get so caught up in our debates, in our urgencies, and our values that we kind of forget about Jesus himself, that he's there, that he's listening, and that probably the best way forward is to be informed by Jesus? History tells us it's not very hard to lose the forest for even one tree. Finding ourselves so passionately focused on all sorts of things that we end up losing sight of how it fits into the larger story. All too often, we can even lose Christ in our Christianity, in our debates. 
We can lose the king in our kingdom. When that happens, things can devolve into the gospel serving just another religious hierarchy, another form of moralism, and a community putting the wrong things and the wrong people at the center, and it begins to look like that type of community that James talks about in our epistle reading today. We zoom in a little further to the specifics of the argument or of the question in Matthew's case. How many of us still rank the room? Do you rank the room? How many of us wonder how we stack up or become fixated on who deserves what? How often do we choose our clothes or our words or our company based on how we'll fit into the social taxonomy? Sure, we're trying to relate, but we're also trying to position ourselves. Sometimes it's to gain more importance or it's at least to make sure we don't have none at all. Sometimes it's conscious, but often it's what I heard one of our village psychologists, Calvin Armording, describe as doing behind our own backs. Do we do this behind our own backs? We too have our own compulsion toward hierarchy, toward stacking things, to be near the top or at least not at the bottom We preference and we defend what we know and who we know, struggling to admit we or they could be, or probably are, misguided. Maybe should I ask some questions? We do lots of things behind our own backs, I think. And like it or not, these are often what the gospel reveals. The gospel tapping on our shoulder to address how the ignorance that we live in becomes the ignorance we live out. So, what were you talking about back there? Silence is not actually a bad response. Oh yeah, to be arrested by this and go, what were we talking about? What were we preferencing or valuing? How were we sorting this thing out? The question of what preoccupies us should arrest us too so that we can actually hear what comes next from Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus sits down, he calls them close, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Interestingly, in Jesus' native language of Aramaic, the word for child and the word for servant are the same word. They're the same word, and the concepts overlap. Jesus then acts it out, doesn't he? He pulls the child into the middle, but not just into the middle for them to see. He brings the child into his arms. He brings him into his arms. And this is a double move, right? He's making the child the center of their focus, but he also is making the child a center of his affection. We shouldn't overlook this double move. Jesus makes the otherwise invisible visible. He flips the script. This child, insignificant in their own valuation, becomes a focal point, an example even. And what is he doing? He's actually dignifying the undignified in some sense. He's honoring what they would not consider worthy of honor He's actually giving the child the most important place to sit. Embracing him. Why does this matter so much? Here's why. The call is to humility, to servanthood, even to a kind of childlike trust which Matthew's Jesus spells out. And here's the deal. If humility is going to be possible for us to, if we're going to be able to understand ourselves in a way that we can enter into humility. It depends not on striving to be different, but first on being seen and cherished by Jesus himself. 
focusing on who we are. And this is what Jesus is showing them. And if the other side of this call is to receive others who seem small and insignificant, then we will need to understand who they are. And this is who they are, as Jesus is holding them in this place of importance, this all-encompassing uh, all and all-important place of being cherished by Jesus himself. This is where humility begins, both for how we understand ourselves, but also how we understand others in their seeming insignificance. Held, honored, loved. This is the first and necessary move of humility. And despite what we're told uh, often, humility does not begin within. It begins with him. Spiritually, friends, you are not an adult. Not really. And even in other areas, it might be more debatable than you think as to your knowledge, your maturity, especially in light of God. We don't know nearly everything. In fact, we know so little. That's hard for us in the late modern West, right? Really hard because we know a lot. We know a whole lot. We've achieved a lot, and we're always achieving a lot, and we're always celebrating and talking about it and who did it. All the information is at our fingertips. Anybody can know anything. We make virtually everyone throughout history look like complete imbeciles, and we're not afraid to say it, are we? And the point is this. Whatever success or honor or wisdom or credentials we've amassed, they simply aren't how greatness in the kingdom is sorted out. Greatness begins in Jesus and because of Jesus. He levels the playing field with his own life. His own servanthood as the beloved, rescued Son of God. So if we're going to be Jesus' emissaries, which is his point as it plays out here, if we're going to be the ones who go in his name, who represent his name, and even see those who are representing his name, we begin in his arms. And so do they. We begin as rescued children, smaller than we generally think we are. But safe to start right there. Safe to be small. Safe to be small. The challenge of receiving Jesus in his own time. I know sometimes I get tired of my own voice too, right? <laughs> the challenge of receiving Jesus in his own time and on his own terms would be that he didn't finally appear to most people to have power or honor. Think about it. He hung naked on a tree, cursed as far as most people were concerned. Things like that don't happen to people God approves of people who come in his name. Things like that happen to the misfits and the nobodies and the nothings whom God is not concerned to save. But in fact, these things happen to God himself. And they happen because this is the God concerned to save the misfits and the nobodies and the in-command adults who are really children and can't see it. You and me. All the people like us clamoring to be seen and applauded when the truth is what we really want is to be seen and loved. Not ranked, not sorted, not reduced to the power we think we have, but if we're honest, no, we really don't. Hence our constant self-preservation and our constant insecurity in the way we live out behind our own backs. The irony in the womb of this story, so to speak, this vital lesson, is that the God of the universe became a helpless child in a world of vices and viruses of dictators and dysfunction. He emptied himself 
to become a servant. And through self-emptying, not self-importance, or even self-preservation, he availed himself to the resurrection power of the living God. And he taught his disciples that this is not only how he does it, this is how we do it. This is how we will do it. Or not. Or not. So in the remaining few minutes, I want to talk about what humility looks like for us on the ground. The posture of servanthood. It's easy to forget or to misunderstand a few things about humility. I can't say everything there is to say about it, but here are just a few things, okay? First of all, the word actually means low, or literally, of the ground, from humus, the dirt, right? Suffice it to say to you Anglicans, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Because humility isn't the act of making ourselves smaller than we actually are. Humility is knowing how small we actually are. And living accordingly. Secondly, humility isn't a lack of obvious strength or competence. It's not. It's not synonymous with weakness. Instead, humility redirects the strength and the competence that we do have toward better ends, toward serving the good of others. And it also, in receiving others, it sees more strength in what we might otherwise consider weak. Does that make sense? Third, humility isn't a necessary lack of knowledge. It's not synonymous with being simple. Instead, humility is the most not, in the most knowledgeable person leaves room for conversation in a posture to learn and even to change. Fourth, humility is the willingness to be a vessel of gifts, not possessions. To let the Lord's power and His gifts guide us, not define us, which can really happen with our money, right? And distinguish us from others. But it calls us to relate, it, it, it relates us to others who are also His vessels. Whatever their gifts or their abilities or their possessions. Fifth, humility is not a personality type or disposition. We can make this mistake and equate humility with just being incredibly nice or mild-mannered with all the edges rounded. This idea has been especially unfair to women in our culture. But I think back to when I was middle school, maybe high school, I think of when we think of this personality type, this caricature, this lampoon, I think of Ned Flanders on The Simpsons who's this bubbly and accommodating milquetoast Christian who greets everyone with this howdly deedly do neighbor. You remember that? And that's unhelpful. That's not what the call to humility is, is to be completely changed in our personalities to this sort of thing. Some of the, and the, you know this, you should know this, some of the seemingly most mild-mannered or nicest people in the world are volcanoes. They're still deeply self-protective and self-interested, trying to curate a padded, conflict-avoidant world, confusing peace with comfort. Sometimes the most humble and self-denying thing you can do is say the hard thing to someone you love, even if it is risky. Real peace is usually hard work, by the way. And peace is the fruit of the humble. Was Jesus meek and mild? Sometimes. Was Jesus humble? All the time. And I'll put it this way. Humility doesn't always look soft, but it is always open. It's available. It cares, and that's obvious. Sixth, humility doesn't assign virtue to poverty or suffering, but it relentlessly assigns value to the poor 
and those who suffer. This is important. If you've ever worked with the poor, you know they are not necessarily humble. Nor are, they the, nor are those who have suffered. They too can be the most selfish people you've ever met. Life circumstances can harden or humble anyone. What we should see every time we see need or suffering is a desire for Jesus to send us in his name to serve that person. And in that sense, he has sent them to us in his name to be served, whatever their posture. Lastly, this. This was seven, by the way, the perfect number. Humility, in calling us to a kind of childlikeness, it frees us of the compulsion to be everyone, everywhere, all the time. To be appropriately small. As I touched on last week, humility is how we can truly be here and now. As I said, being finite is really your only option. And it's going to take humility to do that. Our way of life can trap us all in scarcity, which ends up in evaluation, right? Where do I fit How do I stack up? Am I enough? Will there be enough left over for me? It can trap us in chronos time as though events and people are always happening to us. And in turn, it keeps us from experiencing kairos, God's time, the presence of God in the people and the events of my day as I experience them. I don't do this nearly close to to perfectly. But I know that it's true, and I know that it's going to be the path of stopping and listening and even silence at times to ask what sort of time am I living in and how am I living in it. Strikingly, children are the best example of this kind of freedom I'm talking about to be limited and to be present. Now, they don't feel limited, but they feel a freedom in the present to live in trust without the compulsion of accomplishment and the yoke of our schedules. Certainly the Sabbath is our permission to be small again. Do you know that? To leave it up to our Father. Certainly Jesus' instruction in Mark 9 is our invitation to live from a different place, to live as He did and to receive Him as He was. And this doesn't mean we don't have and feel deep responsibility and urgency in our own lives, but it does redefine what that response and that, that, that urgency ultimately produces in us and through us, how we sort things out. Jesus himself, in his singular responsibility, lived in and from the arms of the Father. So I want you to see what they saw. Let's learn what they learned from. Our God has put in the center of our imaginations, in the midst of all our debates and our struggles and our values, the picture of his suffering servant who chose to be dependent, subordinate, and as a result, determined to live his life for the good of all. This is exactly the invitation. This is exactly the call to us. Renewed every time we open our hands as we come to the table with nothing to receive everything. And what are we doing? We're trusting that the way of the cross is always the way of greatness. It's the way of glory. So the question to us is, do we believe it? And if so, what will that mean for us as we come here and as we go out there? Lord, help us. We know that the humility we need can only come from knowing who we are in you not striving, not feeling the deep insecurity, compensation, stacking, trying to stack the deck in our favor, trying to sort ourselves out, 
by the rules of our society. We ask, Lord, that you free us and help us to live in that. And out of that, help us to be the kind of people who make others free. We thank you for the strength and wisdom and power to do that. Help us to receive it today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.